many of you would define yourself as an introvert? If you're not quite sure what an introvert is, let me describe one to you. When you're an introvert, you recharge in solitude. Though you enjoy genuine connection with others, you find parties and large gatherings exhausting and awkward. When it comes to connection, you prefer one-to-one. Not small talk, but real talk. You might work with people all day and enjoy your work, but when you come home and you want nothing more than to sit down in the quiet, your ideal vacation is a remote cabin in the woods or reading books or recharging in nature. Sometimes it's hard for people to get to know you because you can appear guarded, shy, and can keep people at a distance because you don't want to become overwhelmed. If any of these strikes accord with you, then you're likely an introvert, like me. So maybe like me, some little part of you rejoiced at the thought of social distancing. And maybe some part of you, likely more if you don't have little ones at home, enjoys working from home. And maybe just once or twice, you use this pandemic as an excuse to avoid social connection, even in safe ways. One thing I've noticed about myself, about my heart during this past year, is that choosing to be alone has become easier. Easier in the sense that I don't have to work for my aloneness. It has become the default. This is not the aloneness of solitude, a spiritual practice where you purposefully remove yourself from distraction in order to better love and serve God and others. No, this was a desire to remove myself from others for my own motives. I would get a flutter of anxiety when the phone would ring. I would put off responding to that Facebook message or that text, though I didn't put off scrolling through my feed. Being alone was becoming simple, easy, and safe for me. This was only compounded by the fear and anxiety the pandemic layered on top of my normal fear at social situations. You see, when I'm alone, I'm in control. I don't have to put up or respond to another person. You never know what another person might bring to an open heart. Judgment, anger, grief, an emotion or a situation I might not be able to deal with. Relational isolation sometimes makes my heart feel safe. Isolation of heart, what I'm describing, isn't just an introvert problem. Extroverts can keep their hearts out of bounds just as easily, but in different ways. And after a time of withholding my heart, it becomes easier not to reach out. The more I put off connecting with others, the easier it becomes for my heart to feel fine on its own. So when John asked me if I would preach about where my heart has been during 2020, these movements of my heart away and towards others in these strange and isolating times led me to consider Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. What does it mean to guard your heart? And what are the consequences of leaving it unguarded? 
In order to really understand this verse and the author's message to us today, we must first look at it in context within the book of Proverbs. And then we're going to look at what Jesus says about the heart as well. Let's begin with the book of Proverbs. So this is one of the books of Israel's scripture, what we often call the Old Testament, that part of the Bible that was written before Jesus came on the scene. If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, you might think of it as a collection of short life sayings, like, A gentle answer turns away wrath. The harsh word stirs up anger. Or, A loud and cheerful greeting early in the morning will be taken as a curse. Words to live by, right? But there is actually a lengthy introduction to these short wisdom sayings in which we find advice from a father to his son, advice to embrace the father's words in all aspects of life. This is where we find Proverbs 4.23. Let's read it in the larger context of the passage. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Some things to notice in this passage. I notice all of the body language. Health, body, flow, foot, lips, eyes. You see, in the ancient Hebrew understanding, the heart is actually the center of human life and action. It keeps you breathing, your blood pumping, but it was also where your mind resides and where your desires and your actions come from. As 21st century people, we might use heart as a symbol for our emotions, but we understand that the brain is the center of human activity. Not so for this author. Furthermore, The heart's condition toward God was central to the ancient Hebrew understanding of themselves as God's people. They recited the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. In the Old Testament, Moses and later the prophets are constantly admonishing Israel to consider the condition of their hearts, whether their hearts were soft toward God or hardened towards him. So every time you read the word heart in the Old Testament, the author is likely alluding to the Shema in some way. Back to our verse. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Another thing I notice about this passage, it's a list of commands. Pay attention, do not, guard, keep. The Father's using imperatives here. Guard your heart so you can live in the right way. 
The father wants his son to listen to his words and cherish them at the center of his being. From his teaching, his son will be able to live a good life in line with God's moral world. But there's a problem with this passage. It's easy to read it as a simple moralism, which is a common problem that arises when reading the book of Proverbs in general. Do this, and this will happen. Don't do this, and bad will happen. First, doing this and not that, it's easier said than done. I don't always speak the best about others. I'm easily distracted by things that aren't worth my attention. And as far as staying on the right path, sometimes it's really hard to tell where the right path even is. According to the Father in this passage, it would seem that my actions are flowing from a heart that might be unguarded in some way. The Father says to the Son, If I guard my heart, then right action should flow through me. But this passage doesn't really answer the question, what does it mean to guard my heart? Okay, let's pause here. What immediately pops into your head as a possible answer to this question? I'm going to give you some time. Think about it. Okay, time's up. So this is what comes into my introvert-oriented head. Maybe if I stay away from bad things or bad places or bad people or even make sure I don't get too close to those people who don't agree with me or who rub me the wrong way or who take a lot of work. Maybe if I don't consume or engage in media that has negative or controversial messages. Maybe if I keep my world really small and safe so that my heart won't be bothered or hurt by all the bad stuff out there. And as someone who's grown up in the church, this starts to get a bit muddy. Even my faith community can be a source of pain. It's easy to jump to the conclusion that perhaps it's best to keep my heart closed to just about everyone so that I can close it up to pain, to hurt, and to suffering. Is that what it means to guard my heart? There's this great artist from Chicago. His name is Nick Cave. He illustrates this feeling perfectly. He creates these amazing suits out of found materials. They're colorful and they have lots of textures. They're displayed in museums and galleries, but they're also worn by dancers and performers, like in this picture. The suits, they make sounds as the dancers move, and oftentimes they're in festive parades or processions that the artist orchestrated. He calls them sound suits. I was somewhat aware of Nick Cave's work, but I didn't know much about where his idea for the sound suits came from. At first glance, they look really festive, irreverent, and fun. They made me smile. And when I researched more about his work as a background for a project I was teaching in one of my classes, I actually found that the idea of the sound suit came from a much darker place. Nick Cave made his first sound suit as a response to the beating of Rodney King. 
Rodney King was a victim of police brutality in LA in 1993. His, uh, beating was recorded by onlookers and broadcast all over the world, and it, it caused a lot of pain, um, obviously to King himself, mostly. But Nick Cave was deeply affected by these events as a young black artist, and it helped him realize that the world could be a really dangerous place for a man like himself. So in response, he began to construct a symbolic suit of armor that could protect him from the world. In his own words, he describes these suits, though festive and colorful and performative, functioning as protection against the danger that young black men face, but also, on the other side, as cages that keep the wearer in a kind of prison. Whatever your background, and experience, I know that we can all relate to Nick Cave's desire to protect ourselves from a dangerous world. And then in our efforts, we construct armor, walls, and defenses to protect that innermost part of ourselves, that sacred space we call the heart. We build walls around our hearts, sometimes because we're trying to keep the bad things out, Sometimes we build walls because bad things or people have forced their way in. They serve a real purpose, but they're also a prison, one our hearts weren't meant to live in. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, describes our human efforts to guard our hearts in an even more chilling way. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The more I put off connecting with others, the easier it becomes for my heart to feel fine on its own. Here's the problem. This heart we try to guard with walls and armor, it's become hardened. Not much good can flow out of it in its current condition. Our human efforts to protect it just end up locking us in. So again, I ask, what does it mean to guard my heart? And how can any good thing flow from it? Let's take a look at what Jesus says in Luke 6, 43-45. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Sounds kind of similar to the Proverbs passage, right? 
Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The tree here is like the heart. It doesn't act according to it doesn't act against its nature. If it is a fig tree, it will produce figs. It can't be anything than what it is. So too the heart. If the heart is hard and bitter, it just won't produce anything good. So it's not just about what I allow into my heart, that's the issue. It's the condition of my heart, my heart's identity. This passage comes near to the end of a larger section of Jesus' teaching. This teaching was a response to the Pharisees. You might have heard of them. They were a group of religious leaders at the time, and in this scene, they were complaining about how Jesus and his disciples were breaking some of Moses' commands by picking grain and healing a man's hand on the Sabbath, the holiest day of the week, a day meant to be set aside for rest. Against the Pharisees, Jesus goes on to heal and teach a great gathering of people on the side of a mountain, teaching on the side of the mountain, just like Moses did. In this teaching, he actually restates many of the commands of Moses, but makes them more extreme, more difficult to follow. Don't just love your neighbor, love your enemies. Don't just do good to those who do good to you, do good to those who do bad. Here's an example. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he goes on into the tree passage in Luke 6.43. Let's read it again. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So in these passages, Jesus is advocating a life of radical generosity, of radical forgiveness. Such a life sounds kind of dangerous. It sounds unguarded in a sense. Who can live like this? Who can live with such a radically open heart that they lend without looking for money in return or they give kindness without expectation of repayment? Who can live up to these impossible standards when we have so much difficulty following the most basic moral guidelines? Just as a tree bears the fruit of its nature, so to the heart. If we want different results, what is needed is actually a complete change of nature. So Jesus ends with this well-known parable. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it 
because it was well built. The world can be a really difficult, disappointing, and dangerous place. And we want to guard our hearts by building walls around it, by fortifying and protecting it. The problem is, is that this makes it impossible for Christ to enter, and it makes it impossible for us to open our hearts to others. Furthermore, Jesus points out that anything we build for our own security, these fortifications are easily swept away by the inevitable blizzards and floods and pandemics that life brings. Living the radical way of Jesus is like building your house on a solid foundation. Rather than living in an unguarded, dangerous way, to live with an open heart to God is to trust your heart to him. Only he can protect it from the storms of life. We can't live in this way without Jesus. Like the Father in Proverbs, Jesus is asking us to hear his words and treasure them in our hearts so that our actions will flow out of his radical generosity to us. For heart open to Jesus is open to his transforming presence as well. This isn't living by moral guidelines that will keep us safe. It, like the imagery of the tree, is a complete change of nature, resulting in a heart that is overflowing with the same generous love that Jesus poured out on us. Jesus here is building the groundwork for the church, a community of people with transformed hearts, protected by Christ's presence in us, so that we can open our hearts to each other and to the world around us. Opening one's heart doesn't mean being a doormat, pretending like everything is great when it's not. I mean, Jesus didn't. I've come to see that living with an open heart often means to say something, even when it's hard, to tell the truth, to be humble enough to work hard to find out what is right and courageous enough to do what is right. And ultimately, these difficult actions, they're all in service to love. This is difficult work, not the work of a doormat. It's work that can only be accomplished by Christ's work in me. Studying these passages in the last few weeks has helped me to consider the condition of my own heart. Have I been trying to protect it by closing it to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I authentically open my heart to my church family even when hurt raises its ugly head? Do I trust that Jesus holds my heart, the center of who I am securely? Only then can I love as Jesus loved, forgive as he forgave. Only then can we live as his bodily presence in the world. As Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what does it mean to guard my heart? I've come to see that guarding my heart means opening it to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear and put into practice the words you have spoken today. Help us to open our hearts to your word of life. Jesus, we invite you in. 
Remove our stony walls, our fortifications, our armor. For now that we know you, we do not need them for protection anymore. Your living presence is our guard, our foundation, and we are rooted and grounded in love so that we can truly open our hearts to a tired and fearful world, the world you loved and came to save. Amen.